Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Scopophilia, the podcast. We are the millennial movie movement, and I, of course, am your host, Becky Teller, coming at you with another movie. One of the fun things about this season that I've noticed is that almost everyone who's come on the show for season two has picked a movie that I didn't expect, one, and two, have not seen before. And that seems to be the trend of season two. So we'll see how long that lasts. Uh, But today, we are going way old school. We are going foundations of film. We are going 1931, because we are talking about the iconic Charlie Chaplin today. That's right, we are talking about City Lights, which is a 1931 silent film starring Charlie Chaplin. And I've seen a lot of Charlie Chaplin films in film school, just around. For some reason, I have them all downloaded somewhere on my computer, but I actually had not seen City Lights from start to finish. So this is an interview from back in December of 2020. So this past December, uh, my time recording this, but who knows when you're listening. Um, And I sat down with author and professor at NYU, Saul Austerlitz, who we just had a great time talking about Charlie Chaplin. So I'm going to cut it off here and just get to the good stuff. So without further ado, my interview with Saul Austerlitz about his favorite film, City Lights. Enjoy! Scopophilia, it's the newest thing to hit the market. Defined as deriving aesthetic pleasure from looking at something, it's the new craze sweeping the nation. Taken in large doses, side effects can include an addictive nature to have more film content. If this increase occurs, consult no one and keep listening. Hey there, Scopophiliacs, and welcome to another episode of Scopophilia, the podcast. And I'm so excited because today's guest, we have Saul Austerlitz. Hi, how are you? Good. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And for those who don't know, um, tell me a little bit about the work that you do. Sure. Um, I am a writer and I write about popular culture. Uh, I have written for newspapers and magazines like the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times and Rolling Stone. And I've also written five books, um, including uh, one that's relevant for today, which is Another Fine Mess, A History of American Film Comedy. And more recently, I've written a book called Sitcom and one called Just a Shot Away, and Generation Friends about the television show Friends. Yes, and that's actually how I um, was introduced to your work. I was getting a cup of coffee, and I'm obsessed with Friends, and I picked up your book, and I love it, I have to tell you. It's so interesting to you know really get an inside look as to what that show was about. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. And so what was it about... I. So t- I guess tell me a little bit more about yourself. Let's start there. You know, what was it that made you think, you know, this is the career that I'm that I want. This is the direction that I want to go in. Yeah, when I was in high school, I fell in love with movies and just wanted to see them and talk about them and think about them all the time. And the idea of becoming a film critic or becoming someone who wrote about popular culture was tremendously appealing to me. I had no idea if it was possible or feasible, but I loved the idea of it and started writing when I was in college. And I've been very lucky that I've been able to devote my career to thinking about popular culture and to engaging with it. And it's been a sometimes challenging, but mostly a remarkable experience. That's amazing. And you're saying a lot of things that sound familiar to me. <laughs> being I'm obsessed sure. with the film. <laughs> I'm sure. And so I reached out to you and I said, you know, would you like to be on the show? This is our format. This is what we're doing. And you were gracious enough to say yes. So thank you. Um, and you picked, uh, you were actually the first person to ask, you know, what are the parameters of the films that we're doing? And I, I just said anything, anything you want to do. 
And so you've picked the oldest film that we've ever done on the show (laughs) and also the first silent film we've ever done on the show. And we're talking about City Lights today. I am very excited and (laughs) definitely here to to bring in the old time stuff. I love it. And so what was it about City Lights that you were like, this is, yeah, this is the one, this is my favorite film. So I teach a class on American comedy at NYU. And every semester that I teach it, I show my students City Lights. And it's an interesting experience for me, A, because I think most of my students who are comedy obsessives and know way more about comedy than I ever could, um, haven't seen anything by Charlie Chaplin most of the time, maybe not even familiar with him beyond just being a name that they've vaguely heard of. And I can see that there's a lot of uh, nervous anticipation about the idea of sitting through 90 minutes of a silent film about how terrible an experience it's going to be or how miserable (laughs) they're going to be. Um, Uh And then I see that by the end, they're pleasantly surprised and that they've, I hope the idea is that they come to understand that comedy didn't start in 1990, you know, that there's, that there's a wealth <laughs> of, of history um, in film and that comedy, I think, especially continues to translate. Like to watch um, a drama from 1930, I think, requires um, a lot of, uh, of kind of filling in the gaps in people's information or in their familiarity with film history to understand what were the what were the styles of the time? What were the ways in which stories were told? I don't think that comedy requires that to the same extent. I think you can sit down and watch a Chaplin film with basically no advanced information, with, with no awareness, and still find it appealing and fun and amusing and moving at times. And, and that ability of comedy to kind of transcend time is extremely appealing to me. Absolutely. Well, and so I guess, uh, let me ask you a follow-up question. You know, why City Lights instead of, um, you know, his other films? I mean, you can't go wrong with any of Chaplin's movies. But I think True. that, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do think that one of the things he did particularly well was the combining of comedy and sentiment. The, his ability to make us laugh and then also make us cry. Uh, is something that Chaplin, I think, was especially good at doing. And I think that City Lights, for me at least, is the most moving of his movies, the one that has, um, that creates the deepest bond between the audience and um, the story being told. And so, so that's what always attracts me to City Lights. It's nothing against Modern Times or The Gold Rush or The Great Dictator or any of his other great movies or any of the short films that he's made. But I think that City Lights is, is the, um, the most outstanding demonstration of Chaplin's abilities. Absolutely. Well, and it's so interesting because like I was doing a little research on it and I had I actually just recently talked with somebody about Singing in the Rain, which talks about the jazz singer and, you know, the beginning of talkies. And so when I was doing research on this, I'm like, 1931, the jazz singer came out in 1927. What that doesn't make any sense. It's a silent film. And but it was being made in the era that talkies were becoming big. And so I thought that was really kind of interesting on top of everything else just culturally. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, after promising that comedy requires no context, City Lake right. does require some context. Um, yeah, it's it's helpful to understand that at the time, Chaplin was the biggest star in film and probably also the most famous person in the world. Um, his face was instantly recognizable to pretty much anyone with access to, you know, a, a movie theater in the world. And right. so he had. Um, Chaplin had the ability to kind of deny or push back some of the encroaching technologies of the era. So, so you're right. By you know, 1927 is when the jazz singer comes out, and within a few years, silent films are really yesterday's news. You know, people don't want to make them anymore. Audiences don't want to see them anymore. And so, for Chaplin to make a silent film four years after the jazz singer is a, a real statement of his saying, I'm not done with this form yet. I still have things that I want to do with it. I'm still, I still 
feel like I have something to say. And and he also argued that the tramp, uh, his most famous character, the character that he played in most of his films, was someone who didn't speak, that it would be too confusing or strange or off-putting to hear the tramp speak. And so in order to continue telling these kinds of stories, at least at this moment in his career, he felt that uh, silence was the best way to do it. I think it's also worth noting that City Lights is, I, I would i would definitely call it a silent film, but it's maybe to be more precise, we would say that it doesn't have any dialogue in it, right? There's no, mm-hmm. there's no dialogue in the film. There is some music. There are some sound effects that play a role. Uh, that audiences would have heard when watching the film, but mm-hmm. but but he felt that it was extremely important to his brand of filmmaking at this particular moment in his career that that he not introduced dialogue yet. Which is so, I mean, it's so interesting, and maybe that just comes from the fact that you know, like you've said, the tramp, you know, which is kind of the iconic thing that I think people think of when talking about Charlie Chaplin is a silent character. He he doesn't speak or we never hear him speak really. And so I think it's interesting that, you know, this new technology is coming. You would think someone so big in Hollywood would be like, ooh, new things, like let's use that. And he's just like, nope, we're doing silent pantomime films. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that part of it is that you know, it's helpful for us to remember that the that the silent film was something that was able to be international or or not not specific to any particular um, location in a way that mm-hmm. the sound film wasn't. So Chaplin's character would have different names in different countries. In France, they called him Charlot, and and so in, in, I think that the Tramp felt familiar to people all around the world. Um, in part because he didn't speak. So he could be, you know, any nationality, any background. And and so I think that Chaplin was concerned in a way that introducing speech, introducing dialogue would would instantly sever that connection that he had with his audiences. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And something I hadn't thought about before. <laughs> so then let me ask you, and this might be a difficult question, in terms of City Lights, do you have a favorite like part or moment in the film? I do. Um, I, I feel like the ending of the film is particularly remarkable. Um, I, I always think about an essay that I that I have my students read when I show this film. It's by James Agee, and he wrote it in the late '40s, so at a time when the silent films were were sort of you know twenty years in the distance. Um, and at a time when it was hard to see them and and that they weren't instantly available the way that they are for us today. And he was writing about how he felt that that final scene of City Lights, the moment where um, the tramp is recognized, is one of the the great moments in cinema, one of the really transporting, emotional, emotionally overwhelming scenes in film. And I, I tend to agree with them. I think that it's... It, you sometimes have the feeling with certain filmmakers that they have jerry-rigged an entire film in order to arrive at one particular moment that they have in their heads, one particular scene that they want to create. And I feel like this scene is a, a real example of that. It's a moment where where the kind of um, where Chaplin's interest in overwhelming us with feeling and emotion. Uh, comes to the fore, where this sense of the tramp as being a kind of ridiculous figure, an absurd figure, but also one who we come to admire or or respect or or sort of appreciate for his dignity uh, comes to the fore. And, and it, it's always struck me as being a particularly beautiful scene. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I mean, I was watching it last night to kind of refresh myself. And it's it struck me as how much I feel for the tramp and this blind girl. Even though they say no lines, they only have, you know, most of the movie is not them together, like building a relationship like I think modern audiences are used to nowadays. But I just start to immediately 
like understand their relationship and really start to root for them, which I think is very interesting. And I think one of my notes was something like, oh my gosh, he cares for her so much. That's so sweet. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, you know, Chaplin got his start um, in, in the, you know, sort of late Victorian music halls uh, of Britain. And, um, you know, he, he sort of emerged out of a style that was very interested in sentiment, you know, where, where a kind of, and I don't, I don't mean that in a bad way, but, but there was a kind of interest in, in finding a way to move audiences that you'd entertain them, you'd sing, you'd dance, but you'd also, um, you'd also find a way to, to make them feel something. And so I think that that kind of sentimentality uh, is something that has always been present in Chaplin's career. I, th- I suspect that it may be one of the reasons why um, it seems like he's somewhat fallen out of favor in recent years. But I've, I find that rather than it being uh, a negative component of Chaplin's work, that he is interested in in moving his audiences, he is interested in sentiment, that it really adds to the richness of his work, that he's not he's not necessarily just content to make us laugh. I think he's as gifted as anyone who's ever been in the movies in terms of his abilities to to just find a way to to create these incredible comedic scenes. But he's also interested in kind of pushing beyond that. And, and I think that that's one of the big questions of his career. You know, he starts off early on and he makes these short films that are pretty remarkable, uh, I, you know, sort of 10, 12 minute long movies right. at, at a time mm-hmm. when, when that was really the, the sort of maximum that people were doing. And, and one of the questions that I think emerges relatively early on in his career is his saying to himself, is this all there is? Like, is, is this all, can I just, is, is all I'm going to be able to do just create variants of these incredibly funny short films for the rest of the time that I work in the movies? Or is there something else I can do? And so I think that, that very question of what are the movies capable of doing and how do, how can comedy and drama relate to each other? I think that those are, kind of the fundamental questions of Chaplin's work and the, the ones that he continues exploring in a variety of ways over the course of the, you know, 40 or 45 years that he's making movies. Right. A hundred percent. Well, and I mean, it's so interesting that you bring up this kind of juxtaposition that he has in films of, you know, on one hand, even just looking at this film, the first, I don't know, 10, eight minutes is him just kind of fooling around. He's woken up on the statue and, and it's all very silly and, and, and something that I think we're expecting from Chaplin of like very slapsticky, very silly. And then, but it takes us a good couple minutes to kind of get into what the actual narrative is. And once we're there, we kind of see where the silliness comes from in you know what I mean? I'm trying to find the right words of like, there's a blending between like that silliness and the actual narrative that like we should be paying attention to, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, the film critic Otis Ferguson wrote about modern times, um, one of Chaplin's later films, and was saying mm-hmm. that he he sort of saw it as four or five uh, of Chaplin's classic shorts blend it together or kind of, you know, that, that the, the movie could essentially be cut up into shorter, uh, shorter films. And City Lights, I think, is more integrated than that. But there's, there is still an extent to which you could pull out certain scenes, you know, eight or 10 minutes long and, and have them function as these really brilliant, um, kind of classic Chaplin shorts from an earlier era, you know, whether it's the boxing scene or the scene uh, where he's at you know, his rich friends sort of classy soiree and interrupt it. Um, you know, there, there, there is still that, that fundamental DNA of Chaplin kind of thinking about, uh, thinking about film in these 10 minute, 12 minute installments of, you know, how do I get in and get out really quickly? How do I tell a really funny story and keep it brief? And City Lights is kind of, uh, an evolved version of that in which 
he's still working with the same building blocks, but also interested in telling a kind of bigger story and also interested in not just making us laugh, but also making us feel. Absolutely. Well, and it's, it's funny, like narratively, because I mean, you have all these different kind of moving parts. You have the tramp who's like living his life and then he meets this blind girl and he buys a flower from her and he you kind of get the sense that he loves her and then he meets this you know rich millionaire who only recognizes him when he's drunk and how does that affect the story and it's just there's so many like different layers but again like you said with these building blocks of thinking in kind of 15 minute increment increments um but it 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 doesn't it both feels like you can kind of chop this up a little bit and, and also not at all. You know what I mean? (laughs) Well, the through line of the romantic plot or this, this sort of more tender emotional plot, I think really carries the movie forward so that even in the moments where we're kind of being swept away, swept away by the hilarity of it. I think there's always still that idea in mind of the tramp as kind of this pathetic, but noble figure and the blind girl as someone that he is sacrificing himself for or someone that he is sort of looking out for. And and I think that part of what's moving about it is that we understand, and I think, again, this is sort of helpful context for anyone who's watching City Lights as the first thing that they're seeing of Chaplin's, that Mm -hmm. people would have been instantly familiar with the tramp, right? That, you know, seeing Chaplin's face uh, with his instantly recognizable mustache seeing mm-hmm. his his bowler hat and his cane people would have known who the character was right away so you know not to necessarily think about it in contemporary terms as like sequels or anything like that um this was a character that people were instantly familiar with that they knew that they'd seen many times before and so there's there's a whole swath of um of ideas that emerge just in seeing the tramp, right? That we know that he's always kind of down and out. We know that he's always struggling to get by. We also know that he's going to somehow use his ingenuity and his kind of uh, brilliant ability to improvise to get through difficult moments. And so, so I think audiences would bring in all of those, um, all of those ideas when they saw the tramp. And, and so the additional layer that's put on top of that is this sentimental or romantic attachment. It's not that City Lights is the first movie of Chaplin's where that takes place. I think The Gold Rush is another really good example of a movie that, mm-hmm. that kind of combines these two interests of Chaplin's. But the City Lights, I think, is the, the, most, um, the most intensified of them. Yeah, I mean, I th- I would agree because I mean, gold. So just remind me because I think I'm confusing my my Chaplin films. Gold Rush is the one um, where they're in like the tundra, right? And exactly, uh, yeah, it's where they yeah. go to Alaska, I think. And yes, he's looking to get rich, and he also um, falls in love with a woman there who's maybe making fun of him mm-hmm. uh, and not really interested in him, but then ends up kind of falling for him so there is a kind of uh somewhat roughly similar plot line that happens in the gold rush as well yeah but i mean i think you're right i think city lights between even those two because i feel like gold rush is much more he's the outsider looking in and city lights is a little bit more of these two people kind of found each other and and one of those people you know, being, you know, the tramp, he makes a decision to do kind things for this woman to help her rather than, you know, trying to like get rich quick kind of schemes or like in Gold Rush, he, cause he does find gold in the Gold Rush, does he not? Uh, eventually, yeah. Yeah. So rather than like, becoming actually rich in the end he like does enough to help her and like that's enough for him it kind of feels like if that makes you know what i mean (laughs) yeah he's he's sacrificing himself and so again this kind of returns to some of the 
melodramatic currents of his early life, you know, on stage in Britain, that those are the kinds of stories that were being told. And, and this is, this is kind of a, an elevation of that or an attempt to, you know, to bring it to, to an audience in a, in a intensified or dramatized way. But I think it's also helpful for us to remember the context of the time. So, so Chaplin was always interested in telling the stories of characters who are kind of down and out or at the margins, you know, the tramp Mm -hmm. is, is the embodiment of that. But, and I don't think that Chaplin was a particularly uh, politically sophisticated thinker necessarily. He's someone who spent a lot of time uh, trying to learn about politics, trying to get involved sometimes in ways that were harmful to his career. But I do think that it's worth remembering that this movie is coming out, you know, a few years into the Great Depression. And so the the context, again, you know, the context of a whole world of people who are struggling to get by, uh, I think, again, would have felt really familiar to audiences and, and sort of speaks to the complex ways in which Hollywood responded to the Great Depression, right? So on the one hand, you have movies like City Lights, and then you also have the kinds of movies that Warner Brothers were making at the time, which were movies about um, social problems. And then on the other hand, you have all of the kind of Fred and Ginger movies or, you know, mm-hmm. movies that I sort of think of as people in penthouses wearing top hats and tails, like, you know, mm-hmm. movies about about the, the 1% of the 1930s. And I think that those were also, in a way, kind of responses to the Great Depression, that people were struggling, times were tough, maybe in ways that might feel familiar to us in 2020. And, um, <laughs> and, and people wanted to have escapism, right? So where, where maybe for us right now, escapism for a lot of people might look like superheroes um, or action movies. I think at the time, some of, some of that escapist impulse found itself in, you know, people watching movies about wealthy people just kind of hanging out and, and, you know, singing and dancing or, you know, whatever the case may be. I, I think that, that Chaplin's impulse to kind of tell these sorts of stories was, was one side of a, a complex equation. Absolutely. Well, and I mean, if you, like you said, if you're thinking about these films that were coming out around the same time, I mean, I remember taking a class uh, a couple of years ago where we were talking about gold diggers of 1939, 1930. 33, I think. There's also 35. Yes. But that idea, like that film is kind of based on the idea of like, we know things are hard, but it's also an escape because it's singing and it's dancing and you have all these, you know, very interesting, elaborate scenes. And then all of these women kind of find rich men without necessarily meaning to. And so, but it was that same idea of like escaping into film, which I definitely agree. I have been doing constantly throughout this whole quarantine. (laughs) Well, I think it raises an interesting question, not to wander too far afield, but I think it raises the question of, you know, to what extent will movies deal with the challenges and and tragedies of the last year versus, you know, finding ways to kind of uh, allow us to escape from them. And I, I, you know, obviously with the production of movies taking the time that they do, we wouldn't even be able to see anything that dealt with it yet. Television has to some extent, but Mm -hmm. I'm curious to see the ways in which movies do and maybe more likely don't respond to the ways in which we've all been challenged or burdened over the last year. Yeah, no, I'm, I agree. I'm, I'm so interested to see what Hollywood decides to kind of do in the next couple years in terms of addressing this in terms of, you know, how, how we go about. And it's also going to be interesting to see, because I've been talking to a couple people about, you know, how they're kind of navigating this new world in terms of creating media. And it's, they're still, it feels like they're still not even really sure, you know, how to go about it. So it's, it's interesting to see 
what's going to happen in the next little bit. Because you're right, TV has kind of adapted a, a bit in that they're starting to have seasons where masks are are a main focus. Um, I think I saw a commercial the other day of like a courtroom drama, but the judge has like plexiglass in front of her podium and all this stuff. So it's, it's going to be an interesting world, 100%. <laughs> Yeah, I was reading an interesting article that was, I think it was um, in Vulture, and it was talking about various procedurals that have come back to TV and trying to figure out whether or not the pandemic was happening on the shows or not. You know, so in some of the shows, they would have the main characters would be wearing masks, and then everyone in the background would, for some reason, not be. And in some of the shows, the main characters wouldn't be wearing masks, and everyone in the background would be. So there seems to be a kind of infinite variety of permutations of ways to sort of indicate to the audience that this is taking place in the same world that you are currently living in. Right. Right. Well, and I think there was a uh, one of the, I think, characters from the Goldbergs, I believe, because that takes place in the like 80s, 90s era but they're going to work in masks, but then they can't wear masks because this isn't happening in the 80s, 90s. So it's it's definitely going to be very interesting <laughs> to see yeah. the trajectory of this kind of interesting pandemic mind. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so then let me ask you about comedy scenes in this. And specifically, I was watching it last night thinking a lot about there's kind of this thought process of Buster Keaton versus Charlie Chaplin. And I think first, in my opinion, they have two very different versions of comedy. They're very similar, but I think they're, they have their own kind of distinct signature. Um, Would you say that you see some Buster Keaton and Chaplin and some Chaplin and Buster Keaton, or would you say that they're different? I, I would say that there's there are unquestionably similarities between them. I think that they both emerge from similar places in terms of being, you know, children of the theater in some fashion, right? So Chaplin, like we talked about, kind of emerges from the last gasps of vaudeville in Britain and Keaton. Mm-hmm. Um is someone who grew up with parents who were performers and, you know, sort of spent his entire life from an extremely young age performing on stage with them. So I think they're, they're coming from the same places. I, I think that Keaton strikes me as someone who's more astringent than Chaplin. Uh, he's not really interested in sentiment. He's not really interested in, um, in moving the audience He's much more interested in finding ways to make them laugh. I, I love Keaton. I love his work. I think that it's it's pretty brilliant. Um, mm-hmm. I think they're they're quite similar in the infinite variety of ways that they find to make the audience laugh. And I think that they both develop styles in which we come to understand how their characters think. Right. So I think that one of the appeals for me of watching Chaplin or Keaton after a while is that we can enter a scene and look around at it and and kind of investigate it like like private detectives and say, what's the thing that they're going to do with this? How are they going to manipulate this to make this funny? And it's not to say that that we can outsmart them. They obviously always come up with ways to surprise us. But I think that sense of anticipation, that sense of knowing how the tramp might operate in a given scene or knowing how Keaton's characters might operate in a given scene uh, is is part of what's appealing that that we can kind of anticipate how they might handle themselves or anticipate what it is that's going to to make us laugh. Like I think about the scene in City Lights where the tramp and his rich friend uh, go out to a nightclub. And, oh yeah, mm-hmm. and we see it's being it's decorated. I forget if it's a holiday or it's just being decorated, you know, to look nice. And they have streamers mm-hmm. and confetti hanging from the ceiling. And at one point, um, they arrive at the table and the tramp and his friend are served spaghetti. Yeah. And it's not it's not to say that you can necessarily exactly figure out what's going to happen, but I think your brain starts to, you know, the wheels start to turn a little bit. You say, hmm, spaghetti, confetti. 
I wonder what's going <laughs> to, I wonder what kind of confusion is going to result from this. And it still ends up being surprising and it still ends up being incredibly wonderful and to my mind, really, really funny. Um, but I, I do think that part of it is, is that sense of kind of pleasant anticipation of knowing that Chaplin is going to, to use these kind of humble tools and make something magical out of them. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And it was funny, I was watching it last night and there's that scene towards the beginning where he's looking in the store window and there's like, it's that lift to get things from the basement up to the street. Mm-hmm. And at first, like, I was like, oh, something is opening up behind him. And then he starts walking backwards. And I think I audibly gasped. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> like, even though I know what's coming, it still kind of takes me by surprise. And I think that's one of the things that makes a lot of these, like, really classic Chaplin films kind of timeless because the comedy is still there, even though it's not like the modern comedy that I think we're used to. There's still that kind of like innocent comedy almost, if that makes sense, that this kind of like slapstick, very physical comedy. Yeah. And even in that scene, there is still this element of surprise, right? So we, I think we, we see that we see it being laid out and we think we know what's going to happen. Okay. The, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the lift is going to disappear and, the tramp is going to fall into this hole. And instead, Chaplin delivers all these permutations on it, right? Where he's sort of dancing backwards and forwards, getting a look at this uh, nude statue in the window, right? right? So so first of all, there's a whole other wing of the comedy where he's kind of pretending to admire, I forget, some sort of boring looking painting while he's actually looking at the statue of this naked woman. And he keeps kind of glancing around to make sure that no one is watching him do it. So there's <laughs> there's that. And then at the same time, as we're continually expecting him to fall into this hole, he keeps kind of somehow magically avoiding it, right? He keeps, his heels are kind of dancing at the edge, and then he pulls back. And the moment where he does step back, the lift has somehow magically arrived just at that moment to carry him, right? So, so you know, I think that sense of, our anticipation versus what actually happens is also part of the magic of Chaplin, that he has a brilliant sense of what we think might happen and then being careful not to deliver exactly that, but to to add surprise to our expectations as well. Absolutely, 100%. And it's it's so funny like thinking about all of these like little tiny moments. Cause even the, the moment you're talking about with like the confetti streamer in the pasta and like, he starts to lift out of his chair cause he's still eating it. And it's like, is it just cause he's trying to be funny? There's like a thought that maybe he's a little drunk on top of it. And it's just all of those kind of moments getting together to make that kind of elevating that comedy of like, we think we know it's going to happen. I also think that scene is so funny in that, Every time somebody like tries to argue with him and his friend, they take their coat off like a little bit, almost to say, do you want to fight, bro? And then they put their coat back on. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think that scene works in so many different ways. And and absolutely part of it is, is that sense that Chaplin is just looking for every possible way to make us laugh. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, seeing that sort of slow way that his chin starts to lift upward as he's eating what he thinks is is this incredibly long piece of spaghetti and he starts to sort of chew up to the ceiling is just to my mind is just like a brilliant piece of comedy and yet i think it also plays with this the ways in which chaplin is looking to kind of build up the sentiment that even in this hilarious moment i think we're sort of subtly being reminded that the tramp is hungry right that mm. we don't know when the last time he ate was we know that he's he's struggling to get by. We know that his rich friend only remembers him sometimes when he happens to be drunk. And so right. maybe this is this is the last meal for a while. And so even if it involves kind of dancing his way up to the ceiling in order to eat it, uh, he's okay with that. And so I think the ways in which the comedy and the sentiment are intertwined here are interesting and and kind of continue to play out even in in really subtle ways. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I mean, even that scene where 
the millionaire is trying to like kill himself. He's trying to drown himself in the river. There's an element of comedy because they can't stay out of the water. They keep falling. And then Chaplin just says, I mean, quote unquote, says this line of like, tomorrow the birds will sing, which really struck me last night for some reason. And maybe it's just because like we're in quarantine and I am like fully in pandemic mode of like, I can't leave my house and things seem a little bleak. And then having this line of tomorrow the birds will sing. And it's like, oh, hope. (laughs) And, you know, it's helpful. I think it's helpful for us to remember that for Chaplin, that sense of hope was pretty hard one. You know, he, his childhood, his adolescence was extremely rough. He spent a good part of it in, um, in, in workhouses. Uh, his, his parents both, you know, sort of struggled, didn't necessarily, weren't necessarily always around to raise him. His father, I believe, died of cirrhosis of the liver. Um, his mother struggled with her mental health. So, like, mm-hmm. he, 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 people sometimes talk about, you know, Chaplin's Dickensian childhood. And I think that there is a real element of truth to that, that, you know, he emerged from an extremely, extremely hard scrabble life. And so I think that sense of finding a way to be optimistic, of finding a way to kind of keep that spring in his step, you know, as the tramp, right? So it's sort of the the famous ending of so many of the the Chaplin short films is that after having gone through whatever kind of temporary struggle he goes through, uh, we see him walking off into the distance. He often does kind of a little kick step uh, as we see him walking away. And I think, again, there's a kind of symbolism to that as well, that, you know, no matter what the tramp has to endure, he always kind of maintains this sense of dignity and this sense of enjoyment uh, of whatever small pleasures he can get. And, you know, I, I think that there's there's maybe a lesson for all of us in that, especially at this particular uh, dark moment. Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, and it's, I think this is such an interesting film to watch. And granted, I've been watching a lot of films over quarantine. And so to kind of revisit um, like the silent era, I think is so interesting, especially since I haven't revisited it in a while this idea of like the foundations of film, I find very interesting. And this idea that like, even though I might not be like roaring on the floor laughing, even though it is very funny, I feel so not connected, but I do feel like it would be a very easy thing to picture people in the audience actually roaring with laughter because this is new to them. Whereas I think now modern audiences, we respect it and we think it's funny, but I don't know if it quite has the same impact that it did, you know, when it came out in 1931. So I will say, um, and this is, this is just a personal anecdote, so it doesn't necessarily have scientific validity, but um, (laughs) You know, over the course of the pandemic, one of the things that I've personally been doing, I have two children, they're eight and four. And so uh, filling the time with watching movies has been uh, kind of a key way for everyone to maintain their sanity. Right. And (laughs) one day I just sort of randomly decided to show them a Chaplin film, not expecting much, assuming that wouldn't go super well but i thought we'd give it a try and the strange thing is that they actually loved it um and i i don't necessarily make a a practice of showing them you know kind of uh masterpieces of cinema they're they're a bit young for it but (laughs) but but strangely something about silent movies in particular they really connected with it um when I've shown them more recent comedies, it hasn't really been a big success. But I think something <laughs> about the silent comedies that they're they're simple and straightforward, that they're slapsticky, that the humor is often very physical, right? It involves mm-hmm. people falling down, people getting into all sorts of uh, physical predicaments, um, that the characters are instantly recognizable, you know, whether it's Chaplin, whether it's Keaton, whether it's Harold Lloyd or Laurel and Hardy. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and something something about those movies i think it it still is able to speak to audiences i think you have to be in the right mindset for it i think that you know for for people who will automatically kind of turn up their noses at anything that's black and white or anything that is silent obviously it's not going to work but i do i do genuinely think that for people who are able to maintain an open mind for them that that these silent comedies are still brilliant that they don't require a tremendous amount of explanation in order to enjoy them and that they can be really funny and i i've i was amazed at the extent to which my kids were able to to find real pleasure in them to the extent that they are now asking me uh you know to put on another one to find another one that we can watch as opposed to me kind of foisting it on them in my secret plan to <laughs> make sure that they're exposed to film history so so it, it's been kind of fascinating for me to see that warms my heart i can't even tell you <laughs> that's so wonderful and like and granted i'm a huge proponent of you know, introducing people to these older films. I think it's so important to, to keep them relevant. And so the fact that you're showing your, your children, Charlie Chaplin films makes me so happy. (laughs) 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 What other films have you, have you shown them in Charlie Chaplin? Has it been this one or? We actually have not yet watched this one. I've been saving this one, but we've, we watched, we did the gold rush and modern times and some of the Mm -hmm. shorts. And for Keaton, we watched The General, which mm-hmm. I actually found was required more explanation just because of the like political context of The General. Right. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. And then we watched Steamboat Bill Jr. And recently we've watched a bunch of Laurel and Hardy shorts, which uh, they've really liked. That's so I mean, wonderful. what's 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 not to like? It's just a bunch right. of people like having bricks fall on them and falling out <laughs> windows and like splashing into water. It's like it's ideal for kids. Absolutely. Well, and if you think about it, there's a lot of um, like Disney's been redoing kind of the classic style of like the Mickey Mouse cartoons, and it's very similar in that it's a lot of slapstick, a lot of you know, goofy physical humor and, you know, what's not to like about that? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. Absolutely. So is there anything else we can say about City Lights that we haven't already covered? It feels like we've covered a lot in a short amount of time. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we've hit most of the high points. Um, I do also really like, just in terms of talking about some of the comedy sequences, I do mm-hmm. also really like the scene in which the tramp is in, invited back to his rich friend's house, um, accidentally swallows a whistle, and then oh, interrupts yeah? the entire party, including this, you know, this musical number that's being performed by hiccuping and whistling all at the same time. So, so again, <laughs> kind of speaking to the ways in which the movie is dialogue-free but not entirely silent, yeah. um, but also just like such a brilliant bit of physical comedy the way that Chaplin handles his hiccups the way that he's constantly kind of indicating to everyone who's getting so annoyed with him like sorry 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 like won't happen again and then instantly starts hiccuping again and whistling and he attracts the neighborhood dogs to come by and also interrupt and it's just you know I I think that Chaplin is quite possibly the most gifted physical comedian ever uh, mm-hmm. And City Lights is just is just a wealth of these incredible moments that he manages to put together of demonstrating how gifted he was at you know this this kind of of slapstick humor. Absolutely. Well, and I love in that scene he goes outside because he's like, "All right, I'll go outside that way. I'm not disturbing anyone." And he whistles a cap on accident. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. No. The it's- the. The permutations that he delivers on that with the summoning the cab, and then I think a police officer comes by. It's just, it's, it's really beautifully done. <laughs> so funny. Well, I mean, I know that you have a bit of a time crunch, and you have little kids that you need to start showing more Chaplin films to. So <laughs> I won't take up any more of your time. But thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been so fun. I don't get to talk about silent films a lot, so it's been an absolute pleasure. (laughs) 
Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. This was terrific. You're welcome back anytime. Happy to talk about silent films or any other films you want. And um, yeah, I mean, just thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Another huge thank you to Saul Austerlitz for coming on the show and talking about his favorite film, City Lights. It was so funny doing this interview and then kind of speaking about it afterwards with my mom. Uh, Hi, mom. And because we got into this discussion of how many people who are listening to podcasts or in my generation or the generation after me, how many people are actually watching these films or are even aware of these films. And it, it kind of struck both of us in that way of how do we keep making sure that people are watching Charlie Chaplin films, people are watching old silent films, because it's it's the basis for what we know film to be today. And so rather than thinking to yourself, I can't wait for that next thing to come out, I can't wait for more content, new content to be created, take a second and maybe watch a couple old school films that are already out there that you've never seen before. I mean, there are plenty of lists of AFI's top 100 or any BuzzFeed list you can get your hands on of old school films that you can just watch. And I think a lot of people who aren't familiar with classic Hollywood silent films or just classic Hollywood films in general are going to be surprised at how fun they are and how elegant they are. And there's just something so fun about that era of film to kind of look back on. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. (laughs) Now, if you can't get enough film content, if you just need more, you have a couple options. Option one, make sure you go back and listen to all of our episodes of Scopophilia, the podcast. We are at episode 16 now, and uh, we are continuing onwards. Option two, You can follow us on Instagram at scopophilia underscore podcast, or option number three, you can follow us on TikTok at scopophilia, the podcast. And while you're at it, make sure you rate, review, and subscribe the show because it helps us out a lot. And I want to hear from you about what we're doing right over here. As always, I'm your host, Becky Teller, leading the millennial movie movement here on Scopophilia, and I'll see you all next Friday. Bye!